welcome to Unknown Worlds of the Merrill Collection. I'm your host, Oliver Brackenbury. The Merrill Collection of science fiction, speculation, and fantasy is the Western Hemisphere's largest publicly accessible archive of genre materials. Each week, we explore a different world of genre fiction in conversation with a special guest. Today we'll be speaking with Peter Bercamo about graphic novels. Owner of Toronto's The Beguiling comic store since 1998, Peter also co-founded the globally renowned Toronto Comic Arts Festival and has a close relationship with our very own Merrill Collection. And here we are with Peter. Hi, Peter. Hello. Thank you so much for joining us today. All right, let's let's get into it with uh, just a little personal question. I'm curious, um, what is your earliest memory with comic books? Maybe even the first one you ever remember reading. Uh, I have a very specific memory of being, I believe, at a gas station and having chosen a comic that I was too young to read. And I think it was a Fantastic Four reprint of a Super Scrolls issue. And there had been a, are you sure you don't want the Mickey Mouse <laughs> question? And I was like, I want this one. And I never understood that comic. I often asked my parents to read it to me or help me parse it. Why is this rock creature green in this panel and orange in this panel? Like, what is happening? And they had no ability to understand or help me with any of this. So that is one of the key early moments is not understanding the superhero comic, which, you know, uh, kind of continues to this day. Uh, do, you, do you have a copy of that in your collection somewhere? Maybe even the original? Uh, I think even that copy might, uh, you know, if you asked me to put my hands on it, that would uh, not be something I would swear I could do, but I'm pretty sure it's around here somewhere. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so, okay, how do you feel, staying broad for a minute, how do you feel about the term graphic novel? Is it a useful distinction from calling them comic books, or is it perhaps an unnecessary reach for respectability? Oh, I'm inclined to agree with the unnecessary reach thing, but... As someone who sells books for a living, I will use any term the buyer wants me to use, right? If yeah. graphic novels, graphic whatever suits, that's what a library or institution really wants to use as a term. It's like, I'll use that term. Uh, this is the one, one of the very few instances where, yes, the buyer is right. <laughs> they can call them what they like. I will call them that. I tend to just elide the terms. I say comics and graphic novels, you know. It's a unit in my mind. Comics perhaps is a, an umbrella term, which includes graphic novels for me, not a separate thing. Yeah, uh, I used to work at a comic book shop years ago. And when people say graphic novels, my brain just went to like, oh, you mean like a trade paperback, like a bound collection. But sure. yeah. <laughs> um, all right. The uh, So The Beguiling was opened in 1987. Uh, for this, if our listeners, of course, you know this. Uh, in 1987 by Steve Solomos and Sean Schofield. How did you wind up running The Beguiling? Well, I probably started shopping there a few months later. My go-to comic shop was the one near my grandmother's in Kitchener-Waterloo, Now and Then Books, which mm. I spent most of my money at because that money was earned there working on my holidays. But The Beguiling was a place I would go in Toronto, and it was one of the few places where the material on the shelves kept a couple steps ahead of my maturing interest in comics. It is where I would see things like the raw magazines uh, mm. of in large format raw magazines that maybe 
16 year old me wasn't ready for, but it was like, ooh, those look cool. There was a lot of incidents with that in the first couple of years of my shopping there. Uh, eventually, I worked there on a casual basis also to feed the habit. Uh, the owners mistakenly thought I had more money, uh, maybe because I bought a, some art at times, uh, than I did. So when they did both uh, uh, get their wives pregnant and were about to expect children simultaneously uh, and thought that maybe they should be doing something else besides running a comic shop, I was one of the first people they came to. Uh, yeah, that is the how. Oh, cool. Okay. So, I mean, between that and working it now and then before uh, beforehand, um, have you always worked at comic shops? Has this been your sort of entire adult employment or? <laughs> yeah, it was never had the flavor of career track. It was definitely uh, feeding the hobby, right? All the time. It was like, I never conceived that this would turn into a career, but then it instantly did. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, that must be kind of satisfying just for it to be almost like a serendipity situation. Um, I, I do consider myself, I mean, yeah, uh, there's lots of ways in which I consider myself lucky. That is one of them. Um, so, of course, through the beguiling, you know, you've put your mark on kind of the comic scene in Toronto and at large, but it's not just the story. You also co-founded uh, TCAF, the Toronto Comics Art Festival. Uh, could you please tell our listeners how that came about? TCAF was very much modeled away from conventional comic conventions and, mm -hmm. you know, looking at some of the small press shows in the U.S. and saying, oh, well, yeah, a show like this would be really good in a better city uh, like Toronto, for example. Uh, and looking at some of the European comic shows that I've been to and saying, it's like, yeah, you know, a comic show could be really great if it were well funded and art focused as opposed to commerce centered. Uh, and just looking at, you know, building a, a, a festival that celebrates comics and creators that is not sort of centered around the sale of back issues and mm. collectibles, right? But it really puts the artists at the center. All of those factors went into founding the Toronto Comic Arts Festival. Well, actually, that reminds me, like, would it be fair to say that the, the kind of philosophy of The Beguiling and then by extension what you've just described with TCAF is... You know, you guys have always the latest issue of, say, Wolverine, but you have much more of a focus, it seems, than other stores I've uh, worked at and, and uh, gone to uh, on independent creators and local creators. Is that fair to describe you? Definitely. While we are a local comic shop and carries everything a local comic shop has to, uh, we don't really carry anything that is not specifically comic. So most local comic shops will have bobbleheads and t-shirts and other things like that. But thinking just of the comic book aspects, we do carry everything that a standard comic shop would. The difference really ends up being in the depth of things we carry beyond that. Uh, so as all comic shops had to expand their offerings at some point or another, and many expanded them along pop culture lines going for, well, if people want a Spider-Man comic book, maybe they would also like a t-shirt or a mug or etc expanding them along those lines or collectible lines from comics to trading cards to pogs, whatever it was at the given time, we expanded along the graphic medium line. So, well, you know, Rory Sendak is kind of a cartoonist. His children's books kind of fit in. Or uh, maybe we should have comics from other cultures and got into manga, obviously, very early, but uh, European bande dessinée. Uh, anything that we could find that was like expanded the idea of what 
the medium could entail, that is the way in which we expand it. And so carrying much more small press and trying to have things that you didn't find at the average comic shop uh, is definitely part of how we put that together. Corporate comics, uh, your Marvel, your DC, and other things like that are central to the economy of any comic shop and keeping it going, but they don't have to be what you put forward. Like the thing that you're going to feature most prominently at the ta on the table, the thing that you are going to structure an event around, or that might be your first choice to hand sell. And so while those have always been part of the DNA of the shop, they're very rarely front and center. Yeah, I mean, uh, I haven't been by indoors quite recently because of, you know, pandemic, but uh, for my, you know, my last, I remember all my, my visits to the Island, you know, you guys will have, say, the Wolverine, et cetera, but that'll be kind of more in the back to the left kind of thing. And what I'm greeted by when I come in is like zines and indie creators and all that stuff. And I always, always feel like just my first, you know, the first camera shot from my POV coming into your store is just a wealth of discovery. It's things I haven't seen before or, or works by authors that I haven't seen by them before. Like, yeah, I, I love it. It's a great philosophy. To take that further, that is very much the experience I want in some elements to have anybody, no matter how seasoned they are in the industry or how many comic shops they go to or if they run a comic shop, that at some point in the store, they will find a thing that they haven't heard of before or they haven't seen before that is like, oh, that they will discover something new about comics. And, you know, if you order aggressively and widely enough around the world, you'll be able to do that for just about anybody. Um, so yeah, so dialing back to TCAF for a second, um, in I think for at least 10 years now, it, no more than that, I went to one in 2009. So for most of its life, TCAF has been held uh, within the Toronto Public Library system and has actually led you guys having a, a I believe it's a not-for-profit store? Uh, well, TCAF is a not-for-profit organization and the store does help fund TCAF. Yes. Right. So very tightly entwined with the, with the library system, but TCAF is not your only connection to the library system. This is, of course, Unknown Worlds of the Merrill Collection. Yes. And one of the many reasons we thought it'd be great to have you on here is you have a tight relationship with the Merrill Collection. Would you mind please sharing with our listeners what that is and how it came to be? All right, so it did predate me a little bit, maybe one or two orders ahead of my taking over in 98. Uh, Lorna had approached another comic shop in the city to buy stuff for the collection because some authors had recommended that, you know, a science fiction collection should collect some of these notable works, maybe some of whom had worked on Hugo's or such. Uh, but that comic shop was not willing to invoice. So mm. uh, we were next and the previous owners said, sure, yeah, what do you want? We'll write you an invoice. And uh, the rest is history. So uh, now selling to schools and libraries is a very substantial portion of my business and probably employs close to 10 people uh, that's selling to schools and libraries across the country and internationally. But the Merrill Collection was first. So yes, uh, the uh, perhaps then the Merrill Collection, uh, particularly under Lorna Torlis's guidance early on, is our single most important client uh, for the ripple effects that it has had. Well, that's wonderful. And I mean, if I'm, stop me if I'm incorrect, but you guys have definitely uh, been sort of the uh, the booksellers for at least a few events at the Merrill over the years, right? Like comic signings, that kind of thing? Yeah. The Beguiling had a long history of doing events, but eventually you start doing events that are a little too big for a small bookstore to the number of people who want to come in for that event. 
So you start looking for venues and through helping curate the comic buy, uh, led to it's like, hey, why don't we do this in the lovely auditorium that's in the basement of the Lillian H. Smith building or uh, sometimes smaller events in the collection itself if it was an author that was thematically lined up with speculative fiction. Hmm. Um, okay, so I'd like to pivot a little bit to one of our sort of thematic runners with the show, which is uh, the history of various uh, genre subjects. So, yeah, it's kind of funny. Like, if, if only for the sheer amount of money the films are generating, I don't see the preservation of mainstream superhero comic history being a big issue anytime soon. Alas, though I certainly would love it, I don't see us having a, like, Seth and Daniel Klaus and, like, Linda Barry cinematic universe anytime soon. Sure. Indie stuff feels a bit more vulnerable to fading out of the public consciousness. But in most everything you and the Beguiling do, you seem to be pushing back against that. Do you see yourself as having a role uh, in preserving the history of indie comic creators? I think I'm going to back this up a little further to think about like where it looked like comics were going when I took over the store. And uh, I've said this a number of times, it looked like the future of comics was going to be Daniel Klaus and Seth and Linda Berry, Marjan Satrapi, the authors of comics that appealed to non-traditional comics readers, that traditional comics were eating their tail a little bit, that they were catering only to the proverbial 45-year-old, 13-year-old, and that's who they were writing for, and it didn't seem to be a growth audience. It's like, this is going to age out. Those people will pass on. Uh, you are not, if you write that narrowly. And for a long time, that seemed very true, that the growth in comics was outside of the traditional corporate superhero model. Manga was huge and remains huge. It's still the biggest part of comics publishing. Literary graphic novels were big. But what I didn't see coming is that deep down all of North America and not just now grown adult men comic fans, all of them wanted to uh, have a superhero obsession and that superhero obsession writ large on the big screen. Would not have seen that coming. Uh, and so having made the what I considered the right bet at the time, turns out not to have really mattered because if I just bet on superheroes, I would have made out okay as well. I probably wouldn't have enjoyed my work, uh, but it would have been okay at the bank. So in, in terms of your question about the role in preserving the history of indie publishing, I don't know that I am naturally the best archivist. Uh, I like dealing with archivists and providing them with things and finding them things. I consider the store being an integral part of the indie comics history from having fostered the talent, uh, done events with, helped promote these artists. And I like to feel part of that community through what we've done, but I'm perhaps not its historian. So something I'm, I'm ashamed to say, I only just learned about today, so I haven't had a chance to read it, uh, is, if I'm correct, you published a book by uh, Francois Ayrolles, I'm not sure how to pronounce that, sorry, right. called Key Moments from the History of Comics. Uh, what's the story behind that book? Well, the story behind that book, more than its content, I think relates to the conversation we're having which is the weird nature of doing comic events. And one of the groups that we collaborate with, a fantastic partner has been the cultural arm of the French consulate here in Toronto. And 
at one point after doing several events with French cartoonists, they said, hey, you know, someone else in the country wants to do an event with this French comic artist called uh, uh, Didier Terquin. Do you want to do an event with him? And I was like, okay, I guess so. I mean, this is a author of one of the biggest, brashest fantasy series of the 90s in France. Uh, it's not translated into English, but if you're somehow bringing to North America a European comics bestseller superstar, I'll do something. I can order French books. We can do, yeah, whatever. So that was, I said yes. And then a, a couple months later, they said, hey, you know that thing? It's changed. It's no longer that guy. It's Francois Hérault. And I was like, oh, that's one of my favorite French cartoonists. He is a hardcore formalist who mostly does comics based on intense formal restrictions. So what if we did a comic where the only thing that appeared in word balloons are three symbols, a glass of beer, a heart, or another thing? Or what if we did a comic where uh, we only use punctuation, we don't use letters? Great, I'm excited. That guy doesn't sell anything because he is a very niche thing, but I love his work. We'll do an event with him. And it turned out that that was now going to line up with TCAF when he was coming. It's like, great, he's a guest at TCAF. There's nothing to sell. I better publish a book. So I published a book translating one of his more translatable works of just little gag cartoons imagining moments of comics history. To give oh, you a sense so... of what it's like, uh, there is a drawing which repeats itself through the comic three different times of a very large, austere boardroom with a bunch of men sitting around the board table. And huh. under captioned under it one time is, Mad Magazine is founded. And then the next one is, Heavy Metal is founded. Next, <laughs> you know, it's just like, yes, this is, this is how we imagine these important moments in comics. It's just like, yep, a bunch of guys around a boardroom table. The publication of that book is interesting in a story because it relates to this thing that I do of putting on events and promoting comics. I published a book really because I wanted there to be something to sell when this author I loved happened to be coming, not because I asked for him, but because someone else asked for somebody else and he got substituted. It was a very serendipitous occasion and I'm happy to have published the book. Would love to publish another by him someday, but it's all circumstance. Oh, I love that. That's so not what I expected. <laughs> Oh, okay, so it's a sort of fun goof on the idea of the history of comics. I really like that. Yes. Um, would you ever want to publish another book or get into publishing? Or is it just this one time because of these very specific I just published another book uh, at the right at the beginning of the pandemic. Oh. So a good friend of the stores who has helped with TCAF with both translation and interpreting named Jocelyn Allen was in the store one day and asked me what I was excited about upcoming manga. And I named the, that Drawn and Quarterly was going to be publishing the works of uh, Suge, one of the authors who really started the idea of adult comics in the late 60s. It's like I was excited about that. I, maybe I mentioned one other book that was coming out. And she looked at me and she said, ah, more dudes. I was like, oh, come on. You know, it's true. It's always dudes. And I said, listen, you blogged about a Japanese book that you really liked, that you picked up just because of the cover by a young woman kind of writing about women's sexuality, business, spirituality, and a weird, weird intersection of those three things. And I said to her, 
if you translate it, I'll publish it. We did such a rave review of the Japanese edition. So that's another project that happened just because of that conversation. We did a little Kickstarter. We published the book. It's been really well reviewed, distributed a little. We do these things occasionally. I am not, however, a publisher. Okay, so beyond your, yourself and the Merrill, would you say, is there any person or institution you could recommend our listeners check out, investigate, you know, if they're interested in the history of comics? Well, you mentioned about like the idealized library. And if you are ever driving through Ohio, uh, Columbus, Ohio has the Billy Ireland collection, which is an incredibly impressive collection of comic art and comic related stuff within the Toronto Public Library's circulating collection, there is a wealth of comics to explore. Uh, their graphic novel holdings, nearly all of which I have supplied, are extensive and easy to put on hold and borrow. That doesn't come with particular guidance as to what you should explore. But if you've heard of things, there is a lot to be reading there. Any particular texts uh, on the history of, of comics, though? Like, I know, like, Scott McCloud is an almost kind of thing there with, you know, his stuff, but... Yeah, and com com uh, he is more of like an introduction not to the history of comics, but to the medium and how it works mm -hmm. for people who either don't understand it or maybe think they understand it, but could really think about it more. Uh, and that the understanding comics remains a foundational text. Some of the works about comics history that I like the most are not expansive histories covering the entirety of the medium, but things that focus on specific things in an interesting way. And two books I'll recommend are by a Canadian author named Bart Beattie, who teaches at the University of Calgary. And one of them's probably the simpler to describe is called 12 Cent Archie, where he had the good fortune of, uh, as a tenured professor, being able to decide a project is going to read all of the Archie comics from the roughly 10 year period where they were priced at 12 cents through the sixties and wrote about them in a manner that mirrors the nature of the Archie comics in that, uh, the chapters are all extremely short. They don't connect one to the other. They just observe one little thing, perhaps a chapter on hamburgers, a chapter on the sweater vest, a chapter on Jughead's hat. And, uh, you know, dive deeply into Archie comics from a variety of academic angles, but is very readable by just about anybody. The other one I really enjoyed by his is, and is one of the few books I've been asked to blurb is called Comics Versus Art. And you have in Bart, uh, one of the only people I can imagine who has read every art journal or art forum magazine article that mentions comics in any way, but has also read uh, every issue of Wizard Magazine and the previews catalog for decades. And through these, merging these two things, writes a fascinating analysis of both how the art world has viewed comics. You can think of Lichtenstein, but there are many other examples, and how the comics world has viewed its place as a lower art and viewed art and artists. So this like mirroring back and forth of those two things is a fascinating look at comics. Those sound wonderful. I mean, as someone who uh, always deeply identified with the Jughead while growing up, if nothing else, I want to read that chapter about his hat or the hamburgers. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, and then comics versus art there. What a breadth of reading. It's rare you find someone who embraces the quote unquote high and low art to such a degree. The, uh, in the their book reading. is all a distillation of high and low. 
Okay, so uh, as part of my research for this interview, I found uh, an interview with you with the Trontwist uh, from 2012, where at the end you were asked, uh, what, what was your vision for the future of the Beguiling and kind of by extension comic books in general? But it's been nine years. Uh, what is your vision now for the future of the Beguiling and kind of by extension comic books in general? Well, you know, all visions uh, uh, running a small business in a city like Toronto are uh, real estate dependent. And we had to move a few years ago and got lucky and landed on our feet. And as long as we are able to find a retail space that makes sense, uh, we I will continue to do some version of what I'm doing, which is, I, again, a store that really focuses on the medium itself and not on other things around it. What, what the characters associated with this might, medium might be doing on the big screen is really irrelevant to us. And... I enjoy discovering the, you know, the new product that is coming in every day, learning about new voices in comics, you know, as someone who has been around and read as widely as I have in comics, it's not often that something surprises me, but I, it does happen. And that is part of the joy of the job to find new things. If current appetites and the way they have trended over the last nine years are any indication, there's a lot more of that ahead. I fully expect Western civilization to collapse before interest in comics does. So uh, I've got at least another five years. <laughs> Here's hoping way more, <laughs> just for the sake of civilization. But uh, okay. Um, well, finally, I, I know asking for a recommendation can be overwhelming because, you know, oftentimes when I've asked guests that kind of question they'll go oh i'm terrified of forgetting someone you know i don't want to accidentally uh, you know offend someone or make someone feel hurt so let's limit it this way what is the most recent new work you found that yourself really excited about well i will say that one thing that has come in pandemic era that really excited me was a single issue comic by a long-term Toronto artist who is one of the first artists I dealt with in terms of original art sales, a guy named Jay Stevens. His publisher, who had not published anything for, I want to say, close to 20 years, resurfaced in the, during the pandemic and put out, or resurfaced a little before the pandemic with the collection, but then put out a new single-issue comic. Didn't do it through comic stores, just did it as a Kickstarter or GoFundMe. And he did it's called dwellings and it is a a perfect execution on surface of a harvey comic from the 60s jay has nailed that style and it looks like that but the story matter is very dark and disarmingly so this looks like it's for kids but it is not you know, i don't want to say gory or gruesome or anything like that and just unsettling in a traditional horror manner uh, that was really quite disarming. And I was predisposed to kind of like this, but given its disposable pamphlet nature, was not expecting to be as affected by it as I was. So that was a really nice surprise. I know exactly the look you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the Harvey Comics. I can just imagine. Harvey Comics. So yes, I should mention for your readers, that would be Casper mm -hmm. or Richie Rich or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, so the kind of like dissonance you might get <laughs> reading a dis uh, you know, an unsettling or disturbing story with that visual look. Yeah, I mean, and, uh, right. that kind of dissonance <laughs> is something people play with a lot in comics these days, very effectively. 
but you can you can still pull one past me and surprise me. So, <laughs> awesome. Um, so uh, thank you so much for spending time with us. Obviously, yeah. you would like people to come by the Beguiling and spend money, but is there anything else uh, related to you or any projects upcoming that you'd like people to know about? I think I'd like to just say a little bit more about my relationship with the Merrill Collection. This has been a long-term relationship where they are looking to us for guidance, but then also sharing with us the feedback of the patrons of the collection and the idea of what can constitute speculative fiction can be defined very narrowly or broadly. When we started, there wasn't a lot of science fiction comics being published. And now there's a lot of science fiction comics. So we get to hew to the mandate much more closely without having to say, well, I guess the Legion of Superheroes is SF, right? <laughs> you know, the, which to be fair, it is, but uh, there's a lot more kind of what one would traditionally think of that and a lot of new voices and a lot of material from uh, elsewhere in the world being translated, published in English. So they're one of the most fun clients to deal with because we really get to think about like really think hard about what is coming out and what might be suitable for the collection. Quite recently, I had the pleasure of purchasing the artwork and placing it with the Merrill collection of a Canadian artist who had done work for a science fiction anthology comic called Andromeda that was published in the uh, mid to late seventies here in Toronto, kind of a heavy metal precursor. And while this artist was very talented, I think he realized after doing only a couple of stories in his early 20s that comics couldn't pay very well because there's a lot more work going into a comic page than there is to an illustration. So he had a very successful illustration career doing Harlequin romance covers and other magazine illustrations and paintings and things like that. But he did have these couple of comic stories, both of which were based on stories by contemporaries of Judith Merrill. There are now two great early Canadian science fiction comic stories that are part of the Merrill collection. Wonderful. And of course, anybody who can come in uh, can ask to see them because it is a public archive, unlike so many others, which is yes. lovely. And of course, they can you know browse through all kinds of graphic novels at the Merrill Collection. And if they find themselves wanting to get their own copy, it's less than a block west. Yes, go check uh, out it's, the it is nice that our move placed us in very close walking distance to the collection. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. Well, a pleasure. All right. Take Thanks care. Thanks so much. This has been Unknown Worlds of the Merrill Collection, hosted by myself, Oliver Brackenbury, and produced by Chris Dickey as part of the Friends of Merrill. The Friends are an all-volunteer group dedicated to promoting the Merrill Collection through events and projects like this show. Learn more at friendsofmerrill.org. You can also check out the show notes for our social media links and to further explore today's topic. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time in another world.